Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, we must go to James Athey, who's aged listening to our analysis with Aberdeen Standard this morning. James Athey, these central banks have zero degree of freedom. They may even have negative degrees of freedom. Do you really care or when you invest, do you really invest off what central bank headlines say? Uh, morning, Tom. It's not really what the headlines say. I think the headlines can often miss you know, the detail, the nuance, the reality of the policy. Unfortunately, you can't invest in, in the markets that I invest in. You probably can't invest in any markets without uh, considering to a pretty significant degree what, what central banks are up to. But, but I agree with you. They have no degrees of freedom, really. They've dug themselves a massive trap and they're now stuck in that trap. Uh, and there is no central bank that's suffering that problem uh, to a greater degree than the ECB. Do you think they're stuck down here for the whole of the cycle? James. Yeah, and beyond. I mean, there's literally, the ECB's problem is that it's trying to use cyclical policy to deal with massive, massive structural issues. There is, there's no economic theory that says that monetary policy has anything more than intertemporal effects. And even fiscal policy, to the extent that it's current spending and not investment, only has a a temporal effect, i.e. it brings forward demand from the future to today. It does not in and of itself create demand through the cycle. So the ECB is absolutely trapped. Its job really at the moment seems to be just keeping financial markets from pricing a much more terrifying future and, and hoping that, that politicians can, can get their act together. But I see no evidence that that's occurring either. I'm just working through this statement right now and I'm trying to find the big change. And James, I've got to be honest with you, it just feels like a bunch of tweaks around the margins as far as the forward guidance is concerned. This market, market participants, and the ECB is going to be well aware of this, they want to understand what happens after the emergency ends. What happens with PEP? What happens to all that flexibility? And do the Hawks push back significantly enough that in the asset purchase program, beyond the crisis, beyond the emergency, we lose some flexibility? You're hearing anything about that this morning? Uh, Not at all. I mean, the the market doesn't really care about the underlying economic reality, to be honest. The market wants some certainty around asset purchases because it makes for a very uh, asymmetric uh, you know, market environment and one in which that you can disregard actual fundamentals and risk and valuation and buy things on the basis that the central bank has your back. That's what the market would like to see. Uh, obviously, the ECB governing council has significant disagreement amongst its members, such that there may come a time in the future where that disagreement really does impinge on, on their policy setting. I, I just don't think we're there yet because we're still relatively early in the European recovery. And obviously, with the Delta variant, there are threats to that recovery that are already emerging. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm minded to quote the BGs or, or Boys Own if you're of a younger generation and say it's only words. I, I don't know if Tom knows who Boys Own are. He'll know the BGs, though. Do you know Boys Own are, Tom? Boys Own? No? No. No. I don't think he's missing out. To they be did honest. a cover of the BGs, Tom, a while ago. Yeah. No. Kelly, go on. 
I'm going to plead the fifth on whether or not I know who that is, no, John. just carry on, please. <laughs> yeah, just have another piece of dominoes. James, Continue. that was a conversation killer. Don't worry. <laughs> Kaylee's going to pick this up. All right. Kaylee's going to say James, this. I want to know when you think the market is going to get some answers. I was I was uh, speaking with an economist over at Barclays yesterday saying this meeting maybe was overhyped and that, yes, we were going to get, as John says, some tweaks around the margins. But the real answer as to what the market's looking for is not going to be coming until September or December. When do you expect us to have a clue what the post-PEP world is going to look like? Well, I mean, that's that's really difficult to say because obviously it will depend on, on economic outturns and, and honestly it will depend on what's happening outside the Eurozone as much as it is what's happening within the Eurozone. Again, I don't expect to see any material shift in the structural outlook for the Eurozone, but of course bond markets are highly correlated. And so in this world where the ECB is managing monetary conditions you know, to whatever that that actually means, there is always the you know the real danger that uh, tightening from the Federal Reserve can lead to an unwarranted, unwanted tightening from the ECB, and they will seek to offset that almost regardless of uh, the domestic economic data. That is to say, again, the way central banks run their mandates, they're not really too concerned um, until they get to the steady state as they see it, which is to say the, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, the Nehru, when the economy yeah. has reached its capacity, then they care about tightening policy. Up until that point, they, they've absolutely no interest in making marginal adjustments to the policy as they get there. So the ECB, until it gets there, it's not going to want to tighten policy, and it may have to loosen policy to offset a tightening which is coming externally. James, early pine, or will you watch this news conference in 35 minutes? I've got a meeting, unfortunately. There we go. What so a surprise. I will miss it, John. <laughs> James, how unfortunate. It's good to see you. James Athey, Aberdeen Thanks Standard Investment Senior Investment Manager. We kept a secret from Julia Coronado because we knew that if she knew I was going here, she wouldn't have, would have had an excuse, <laughs> you know, not to come on. Yep. Dr. Coronado joins us from Macro Policy Perspectives. Julia, this came uh, up uh, as I was having a beverage of my choice, and someone said to me, okay, I get ISLM going back to Hicks and the real economy and the money economy, and now none of this theory is working right now given the fiscal stimulus and the insanity of this natural disaster that we're all living. But then it folds over into aggregate supply and aggregate demand. Dr. Coronado, could you explain to our audience how these dynamics affect them when we go from central bank mumbo jumbo like ISLM over to America's aggregate supply and America's aggregate demand? Yeah, and those dynamics are incredibly complex even in normal times, let alone uh, when we're sort of rebooting the global economy yeah. and dealing with a lot of liquidity sloshing around. So, you know, for example, even when the cycle was running very strong uh, last before the pandemic, we didn't see any inflationary pressures. Why? Well, you know, we had wage gains that were solid, but not really accelerating. We saw consumers that were pretty price sensitive. They were very budget conscious, even as they were feeling good about the world. We think an older economy, consumers that have been through multiple crises, just are more cautious. And that's one of the big questions going forward is do right. consumers return to those cautious, price-sensitive, budget-conscious ways 
that limit uh, how much of the supply chain <laughs> bottleneck price pressures can be passed through at the retail level. There are lines on the page. My eyes used to glaze over. Coronado nailed this stuff <laughs> in school. And there were shifts along the line. In the great yeah. debate were these two strange words, endogenous within the system and exogenous outside the system. Right. Is a pandemic endogenous or exogenous? I know the It's exogenous. I mean, this couldn't be a better example of sort of an exogenous shock in the sense of, you know, without getting into the origins of the virus. You know, for the most of the people in the economy, most of the businesses and consumers, this just hit us like lightning. Uh, you know, early 2020, we weren't sort of preparing for a pandemic. We were preparing for another year that looked sort of like 2019. So uh, it really caught everybody off guard. And then the complicating factor, Tom, is that many businesses saw the crisis and sort of pulled out the crisis playbook. Okay, uh, I know that demand is going to collapse. I'm going to sell off my inventories. I'm going to ramp down operations uh, and hoard liquidity and just get real cautious. But then we went into a good spending boom uh, supported by the fiscal stimulus. And, you know, that caught home builders off guard and it caught a lot of, you know, uh, good sellers and producers off guard and now they're scrambling to catch up uh, and that and and therein lies a lot of the frictions that you hear uh, uh, Lagarde and Powell uh, talking about they expect these things to be transitory because you know if anything we learned during the pandemic and we expect it to be true a after the pandemic or as we move forward we're pretty resilient and creative and, you know, we find ways to get things done even through these challenges. So um, it's not going to happen yeah. overnight, but we do expect ship manufacturing to ramp up and some of those bottlenecks yeah. to ease. And then competition is going to play its role and drive prices back down. And Paul, to me, what Dr. Coronado says there is the absolute foundational thing that corporations adapt Yes. And adjust. Yep. And They're malleable that. and they make decisions as the information's given to them. Yeah, and we're seeing that in, in the earnings that are just being reported uh, this period. Uh, Julie, I'd love to get your thoughts. We just heard from Christine Lagarde this morning. She is uh, she had some comments. Uh, you know, I guess the takeaway is lower for longer, or some would even suggest lower forever. Given <laughs> what we heard from Christine Lagarde, what do you expect to hear from this Federal Reserve coming up for the July meeting? Well, look, I think the Fed is in a different place than uh, the ECB. Uh, and so I do think that Chair Powell will confirm that the discussions around the modalities and specifics of tapering got underway. I think they're going to get underway in July. They're going to get briefings from the New York Fed staff and the board staff on different choices that they need to make and what are the pros and cons. And they're going to have a detailed discussion. And I think he'll confirm that. Um, I think, you know, in in the next month, maybe with the July minutes, maybe at Jackson Hole, you know, last cycle, we got this kind of blueprint, sort of a statement of normalization principles and plans. And so that's one question. Will we get kind of a blueprint from the Fed? These are the things that we've agreed upon. For example, we expect to taper and end bond purchases before raising rates uh, is one thing they said last time. I would expect them to reiterate that this time. They may sort of specify that they're going to 
have an even-handed sort of tapering between Treasuries and MBS. I'm not sure if they get that specific, but something that provides us guidance along those lines to resolve some of the debates we've been having in markets and provide some clarity. That's, That's what Chair Powell wants to do is lay the groundwork for markets steadily, methodically, well ahead of the actual announcement, which we still expect to come in December, maybe November if the data run well. Uh, But we don't think they're in a hurry. But at the same, so it's kind of start the signaling process, start the planning process, and give plenty of runway to markets to adapt to the fact that the Fed is going to be withdrawing some of the liquidity support it's been pumping in over the last year plus. You know, it's interesting. We were just talking to a guest earlier, Julia, and just kind of he was bemoaning the fact that in Europe, yes, they have lots of monetary uh, easing and support, but really uh, too little and too late on the fiscal stimulus side. That's certainly not the case here in the U.S. Plenty of stimulus has been pumped into this economy. How critical is it to get even more? Well, I think if there's what we're talking about now on fiscal policy in terms of the infrastructure packages is very different from what we put in over the last year, which was multiple injections of big liquidity directly to consumers and businesses. They were one-time payments to get people through the pandemic, to build a bridge of financing effectively, uh, which it did very well, maybe maybe too well in some in some cases, but definitely got a lot of people through. What we're talking about now is much more structural. We're talking about a 10-year spending plan of building capacity in certain areas that we think we need, uh, repairing you know, physical infrastructure, uh, addressing certain um, sort of structural shortcomings in our economy, and again, over a longer horizon, and by the way, mostly paid for. That does not fall under mm-hmm. the category of fiscal stimulus. Uh, that's more of a you know, retooling and uh, uh, structural adjustment in uh, certain areas of the economy. You know, I do think it won't fully be paid for. So there will be some fiscal tailwinds. But, you know, in terms of the dynamics of that, the timing of that, it's not at all like what we what we are emerging from now. Okay, let's leave it there. Julia Coronado, thank you so much, particularly the clinic early on. He was knighted, or at least made a lord by Cleveland at one yeah. point, after staring down a <laughs> utility with some great threat to his life. He's gone on to do all sorts of things within the American dialogue, and this is a guy out of Cleveland who became identified with Cleveland, a struggling Cleveland, and helped form Cleveland into what it is uh, today with a pretty earnest and good recovery. Dennis Kucinich joins us now. Uh, at one point, the youngest mayor, I think, on planet earth (laughs) joins us in celebration of the light the division of light and power mayor kucinich thank you so much for joining us today what i love about your book is you do the modern thing you have these wicked short chapters of six or seven pages which was the hardest chapter to write of some 60 70 of them in your book the first chapter (laughs) I started that book in November of 1979, and what, what, you, what you're reading, what the reader will see, represents the seventh draft yeah. of a book that was written over a period of 40 years. 
It's Yucks now, and of course, so many people know you from your TV efforts as well. It was deadly serious back then in Cleveland. And oh, yeah. that you were knighted by Cleveland later for staring down the public utilities of trying to think about the city. When did you know the tide had turned and your belief in Cleveland and the ownership of the utilities would be brought out? Fifteen years after I left office, Cleveland announced they were expanding uh, a public power system that I saved. And it took the people of Cleveland about 15 years to figure out what happened, and that is that uh, if I had mm -hmm. sold the municipal electric system, it would have cost them hundreds of millions of dollars in increased taxes and utility rates. So, yeah, it took 15 years, but fortunately I had time to spare. So give us a sense, uh, Dennis, about really what was the heart of the matter of the initial uh, challenge for you with this utility? Just give our, our, our listeners kind of a, a sense of yeah, time yeah, and space. Sure, of course. Cleveland and the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company I had two competing electric systems that competed side by side for uh, over 75 years. Uh, municipal electric system called Muni Light and then CEI, the private uh, investor-owned utility. Well, what happened, though, is that CEI made a decision at some point they wanted to take over uh, Muni Light. And so they developed a plan, which became you know, public, and they also used their power with the media to try to uh, force the issue of the sale. And so uh, the book opens up with blackouts that are occurring in downtown Cleveland over the holidays. And as the story unfolds, uh, it's clear that we're in a story of corporate sabotage and espionage. And uh, it, it takes a very dark turn beyond the blackouts very quickly. And it ends up becoming an unprecedented story in American history, documented, by the way, uh, about uh, the a battle between uh, you know, a public, uh, publicly owned utility yeah. and a privately owned utility. The division of light and power, and part of that, uh, America Sinich, is the idea of the division of power in Washington. Your observation on what your Democratic Party needs to do to keep majority in the House and grab a legitimate majority uh, in, the, in, in the Senate. How do the progressives, the liberals of your party, need to speak to more moderate Democrats? Well, the first thing I need to do is to support uh, law enforcement in the cities because crime rates are going up in the cities. I mean, Cleveland's had a sharp increase in homicides, felonious assaults, uh, carjackings, and people are concerned. And the party needs to have a strong stand on, on public safety. You know, we're for civil liberties. Everyone understands that. But we've got to show that we also understand that some cities are under a siege of crime. Uh, you know, it's the old mantra of jobs, 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 and uh, we need to make it possible for people to get back to work and to make sure they're making a decent wage, and that, you know, is what an infrastructure bill has to be about. And, you know, that's, that's it's kind of like uh, the old FDR formula, uh, which we unfortunately got away from. So, Mayor, you know, we have a president who was in the Senate for 40 years. We have a vice president who just came out of the Senate. There was some expectation, maybe it was just hope, that there would be uh, an opportunity for some real bipartisan work in Congress. It does not appear uh, that that's going to be the case. Should anyone be surprised? Well, you know, I mean, first of all, Joe Biden is very pragmatic. I've known uh, President Biden for almost 50 years. And he's, you know, he's a product of the institution and he knows almost, you know, like Lyndon Johnson, he knows 
how the institution works. So I think we should, you know, expect some progress. But we're in an era of hyperpartisanship, which is, you know, which is resulting in an, in inertia, and that's bad for the country. And so, you know, this battle for control of the Senate and the House uh, is uh, creating certain, uh, you know, aspects of our politics which are so destructive. I think the American people are getting fed up with both parties as a result of that. And, you know, it's like, hey, settle your differences, run the government, and don't screw it up. Dennis Kucinich, The Division of Light and Power, reads like a movie script. It's like every, I think the longest chapter is like eight pages. I right. love it. Yep. I love it. It's boom, yep. boom, boom. You get right through this on the Titanic battle he faced in Cleveland uh, over public uh, utilities in a political battle and involves some crime mm-hmm. as well. I mean, it, cool. there's way more than just regulated utility chat. Right, exactly. Uh, Dennis Kucinich, of course, Democrat as well. Jennifer Nuzzo with us, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and a senior uh, scholar. Jennifer, I want to go back to April 26th. April 26th, the EU was really looking at letting American tourists into Europe. There was a better tone. Hospitalizations now led by the unvaccinated have returned to where they were April 26th, and it is not a good trend. What is the character of those hospitalizations? Yeah, it is not a good trend. I mean, it is a different patient population than had been hospitalized earlier in the pandemic. In particular, we have um, fortunately seen good vaccine uptake against the populations that are most likely to become severely ill, the um, older adults. And so now the people who are being hospitalized um, are younger. Although age is the single biggest risk factor, it's not the only risk factor. And so certainly um, people with underlying health conditions, and and it's a list, it's a lot of people um, that fit in that category, Um, but also even potentially people who have no underlying health conditions are unfortunately now um, being hospitalized. And it's so tragic because vaccines can prevent that from happening. Jennifer, we used to talk about trying to achieve a 70% vaccination rate in this country. Can you compare and contrast the reproduction rate of this variant, the dominant variant right now, the Delta variant, compared to what we first experienced 18 months ago and what that means for those kind of goals, whether 70% now needs to be 75, 80, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, it does likely need to be higher. Um, The Delta variant is spreading much more quickly and it's potentially spreading a bit earlier um, in people's uh, illness, possibly when they're not even feeling much. Um, So that complicates things. So the fact that if you're sick and you're out and about, you can infect more people than you would have with earlier forms of the virus just makes it harder for public health officials, um, you know, to outrun it, to to use other measures uh, to try to control it. And that's why it's really important that we don't have to do that, that we can prevent those infections from occurring in the first place. And that's what vaccines are, are great at doing. Not perfect, but great. Masks. That's the conversation down in D.C., Jennifer. You know it's back on the table. Politico this morning, return of the masks. The Washington Post going with White House officials, debate masking push as COVID infections spike. If you've been vaccinated, Jennifer, what does a mask do for you? What does it do for others? Sure. Well, listen, as I said before, the vaccines are are pretty good at preventing you from um, getting infected. That said, we know that there are some people who are still going to get 
ill potentially, but you know, it'll keep them out of the hospital. It'll be mild. It'll be the kind of uh, illness that if that's all the virus could do, we would have never heard of this virus in the first place. So if you're somebody in that category where, you know, you don't want to get that illness, then wearing a mask, even though you're vaccinated, may be helpful. Your need to do that um, is greater when you're in a place where there's just a lot more illness around you, where people are um, more likely to be infected, where there's lower protection overall in the community because mm. of low vaccination rates. Our um, that said, don't believe that the vaccines don't, um, you know, give you some protection. I think there's been a rising narrative about that, that it's really disturbing to me. Are schools one of those places where you need to be more careful? Jennifer, my home state of Virginia yesterday urging everyone in an elementary school, students, teachers alike, to mask up given under 12 still aren't vaccinated. As we approach the school year, is it safe for students to be returning? Sure. So first of all, we know that um, it is possible to return children to school um, safely, and it's really essential that we do so after um, this past year and a half of, of uh, educational disruption. That itself carries harms. I've got two young kids who are too young uh, to be vaccinated, um, so I'm very much in that boat. So, so we can do it safely. Now, it has been recommended that um, kids, particularly those who uh, can't be vaccinated, wear masks. You know, truthfully, I think it's going to depend on what the level of infection in the community is. If you're in a community that has done done its part, has vaccinated its adults, and there are very few cases, it seems hard to think that you need to wear masks in schools. That said, if, you know, you want to have zero risk tolerance and let's just get them back and make sure they're as safe as possible, then, you know, that's that's an important tool to use. I think in schools where the case numbers in the surrounding communities are raging, then masks are probably an important tool because we do know that if there are cases among kids in schools, um, it follows what happens in the surrounding community. Um, mm. I do have to stress, though, that overall kids are at lower risk of serious illness um, from all forms of the virus, including the Delta variant. There's been some, I think, confusing conversation about that lately. And as a parent, um, I would want other parents to know that. So, you know, we just we face those risks um, with with what uh, data we have right now. Well, Jennifer, school is not back in session yet. It is still summer vacation and it's so the summer season in Europe, too. And yet anyone in Europe looking to take a vacation in the U.S. still can't do that. The Biden administration yet hasn't yet made a decision. If you were advising the president and the people around him as to whether or not that's safe, given the concerns of the Delta variant, what would you say? Well, first of all, the Delta variant is already here and it's raging. So if we're not letting people in because we want to keep it out, then that ship has already sailed. Um, you know, I think there's probably political pressures to keep the border closed because people, you know, and to prevent people from coming because it's probably just easier. Um, but I'm not convinced that it's doing much for us epidemiologically. Is it politics or is it science? That's the big question right now. And a lot of people keep saying it's about politics, including yourself, Jennifer. It's good to catch up. Jennifer Nutso, so Johns Hopkins Center for House Security Senior Scholar. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.